I want to invite you to turn to the book of Exodus. We'll be giving our attention to Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. Those of you who are members and regular attenders of Emmaus Road Church, you more than likely participate in what we call gospel communities. And one of my favorite rhythms that we practice in our gospel communities is the telling of our stories with God as the hero. Hearing one another tell what God has done to make us His people, uh, make, make us the people that we are today, is consistently a sweet and powerful and encouraging and profoundly humbling experience. We, we, we feel the impact of this practice by the way it, it simultaneously reveals something of who we are and perhaps more significantly the way it reveals who God is. We, we tell of God's creative and providential formation of our lives. We acknowledge our fallen and sinful helpless nature. We recount God's gracious and sovereign work of redemption and all that He has done to save us and to draw us to Himself. And we draw attention to what God is continuing to do to restore us to His image and purpose. And, and uh, what you just saw a little bit ago is, is part of all of that. It, it, it's through this practice of telling our stories, that we open a window for one another into who we are and what we're like, but we also open a window for one another into who God is and what He is like. And, and, and I think that the magic, if I can call it that, bear with me, the, the magic that happens in this practice is this. As, as we disclose who we are, by drawing attention to the people and the critical events that God has used to shape us into the people we are, our hearts are often knit together through the shared wonder at the greatness and the goodness of who God is and what He has done. I believe that the purpose of Exodus chapter 34 verses 1 through 9 it's the same purpose. In this passage, God, God tells His story. He discloses who He is and what He is like. And God's aim and purpose in doing so is to knit our hearts and our souls to Him through the shared wonder and the joy that we experience in the glory of His greatness and his goodness. Now, to understand this passage rightly, we have to take into account the events of Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses expresses his passionate and, and audacious request of God Show me your glory. And then God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim 
before you my name, the Lord. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then in Exodus chapter 33, verse 21, the Lord says, There is a place. There's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I'll take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Loved ones, our text today, Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9, is, it is the account of Moses' experience of God while standing in the cleft of the rock. And from the vantage point of that safe place, <laughs> Moses has a front row seat from which he hears God tell his story, from which he hears God himself proclaim who he is. And can you believe this? It's all recorded for us to hear. <laughs> so I want to invite you, if you're able, to please stand again in honor of God's word and follow along as we have the remarkable privilege of hearing God tell his story. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand Two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, 
If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. With Moses, we're standing on holy ground. Bow with me in worship and prayer. It's our confidence today, O oh God, that what you have revealed of yourself verbally and recorded in your word is sufficient to give us everything that we need to know you. It is, it is powerful to awaken dead hearts, souls that are unresponsive to you, and give life and faith. It's our confidence that you communicate yourself in saving and sanctifying ways through what you've said. And we also believe that you communicate all that you are in saving and sanctifying ways, not only through your word spoken and proclaimed, but your word revealed in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're looking to you, Lord, today. Oh, Lord, if you would bring your presence and power to bear upon us in this gathering, show us your glory, O oh God, through the working of your Holy Spirit and for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This text falls neatly into three parts. Part one, in part one, Moses gets ready. In part two, God tells his story. And then in part three, Moses responds. So we're going to look at these one at a time. And first, part one, Moses gets ready. Exodus 34 begins with God's instructions for a new edition of the stone tablets. Once again, God will inscribe the, the Ten Commandments and the laws that inform, give shape to his covenant relationship with his people. Moses will cut the stones, God will do the writing, and God's purpose is once again to reveal himself, to communicate his character. God's desire is for his people to live, as Ethan said earlier, quorum Deo, before him, before his presence. And this, this, friends, is breathtaking. Since in spite of their spectacular rebellion and rejection, God still wants his people to experience the joy of his very presence. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself... 
two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So God, God is about to reveal himself again through words. And what he's going to reveal through words is not just mere abstract information, data, doctrine. It's not simply a lecture. It's not just merely the, the content of a textbook. God's words will reveal who he is to the people he has saved. Nor will this be, I think, important to note, nor will this be a display of sheer power and awesomeness, perfections, infinite, spectacle. We, we must never forget that God's word is designed for relationship. The revelation of God through his word is intended to engender joyful communion with God. God's purpose for this book is to draw us into life together with God himself. So when, when Ella Crawford shared her testimony with me a couple weeks ago, one of the sweet things that she said was that had changed for her was that when she read the Bible now, she felt joy in God. Loved ones, that's what God intends. His words, His commands, His laws are all about revelation of God for the purpose of engendering a joyful relationship with God. So God tells Moses, let's fix those tablets. Second edition. Coming out. Verses 2 and 3. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So, so even though God makes every provision for his people to know him, every provision for his people to experience him, the one true God is nevertheless a holy God. And one must not nor cannot approach him casually or without an invitation. Those who treat God like their little buddy clearly have no appreciation for why it was necessary for Moses to stand in the cleft of the rock covered by God's hand without a covering, without a mediator, without Christ, no mortal human being can draw near to God and live. That's, why we, that's actually why we have a call to worship. When we gather here, we let God have the first word. We, we let God invite us. We make his voice of invitation the first thing. And that's, that's why you want to be here at the beginning. So that you can be on the receiving end of God's invitation. And therefore our rejoicing in God's presence is mingled with trembling in God's presence. Verse 4 says, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, 
And he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now, Moses has got to be thinking, will I survive this? (laughs) Right? In Exodus 33, 19, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. So Moses is about to see and to hear what no other human being on the earth had ever seen or heard. I've heard, I heard somebody say, this is Moses' walk on the moon moment. It, it doesn't get any bigger than this. He's going to meet with the Lord. And so it happens. Verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. Moses experiences a, a personally provided disclosure of God's character. Moses experiences a more profound awareness of the sum of God's nature than he had ever experienced previously. And that is awesome to consider. How do you conceive? How do you conceive of God's transcendent glory? Can you get your head around it? Is it all fire and smoke and earthquakes and... What's God actually like when you engage with him personally? When God tells his story, when God offers a more profound awareness of his nearness and the the entirety of his nature, what are your first assumptions? Moses is about to learn. We are about to learn what that is. What God promised to Moses in Exodus 33, 19 is now fulfilled in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. God descends in a cloud. Imagine that. (laughs) But immediately the text says, and stood with him there. Stood there with him. The, the, The Lord stood there with Moses. The first thing as the Lord descends is heightened intimacy. Don't you don't you wonder? What did Moses see? The Lord is right there with him, mercifully shielding him with his hand, lest Moses receive a a, a lethal dose of divine glory. And, and, And the first thing Moses experiences is not face melting holiness. The first thing is words. 
God speaks. God reveals himself. God proclaims his nature. God tells his story. And listen, this is, is, I think, very important. The, The glory of God's story is how his exalted nature is revealed in the way he relates to his people. This is not all about shock and awe, fire, smoke, earthquakes. This is what God reveals of his glory is how his exalted nature is revealed in the way that he relates to his people. Verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or as you might Notice, and if you see a little footnote in your translation, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Notice, notice this. God does not flash his high and omnipotent power and might. Rather, he proclaims his personal name, the Lord, the Lord. We saw it back in Exodus 3 in the burning bush. This is his personal name, Yahweh. He proclaims the name that disclosed his nature, the name that was a promise of his presence with his people. A promise of his actions for his people. The Lord. The Lord. It mu- you know, it must have sent chills down Moses' spine. He'd heard that before. He heard it at the burning bush. But this is like way, 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 way bigger than that. And, and God is reiterating that promise. And what makes it bigger and insanely mind-blowing, is, is, is on account of what had just happened in Exodus 32. You see, you see God is he's saying, I am still God with my people. I am still God for my people. I am still the present one and present to save. But this time, this time God is going to, a step further with Moses, and he's going to unfold the significance of all of that promise with an explanation of his name. So, who is God? What's he like? God himself is about to tell us. And he does so by communicating seven attributes that will will describe his nature. It's like a a multifaceted jewel shining forth his manifold goodness. You, you just, every, every side 
is something spectacular. And again, notice that God says nothing here about his power or the place, or he doesn't place the accent on his divine perfections. What God says, what, what he communicates is all about how he relates to others. What's he like? Well, first, God is merciful. <laughs> is that what you expected? The first thing that God would say about himself to a people who had just rejected him for a baby cow? God is merciful. God is for his people. That word means compassionate. It's an emotional word that speaks of tenderness and concern and sympathy. You know, we, we, it's obvious we've got a whole bunch of first and second and third time parents here. This word merciful, this is, this is the word that describes what a mother and perhaps a father and most certainly a grandparent has for a child. Deeply caring, deeply feeling that, that child's vulnerability and their heart welling up in love. I, I know you've you new parents say this all the time now to us. We hear it. You, you're just surprised by what happened to you when that little one appeared. It's the feeling of ferocious, unexpected, instantaneous love that comes from somewhere deep in there. It's that mother bear impulse. And it says, I will protect this child with my life, so back off. This, loved ones, is how God is toward his people. Do you think of God that way? Welling up in mercy, sensitive to your needs and vulnerabilities, especially after you have blown him off. Second, God is gracious. And this word is not so much about an emotion, but an inclination of God's heart toward those in need. And I, and I would add, again, especially those who do not deserve it. God does not turn a cold shoulder to you. God does not look down on you for all of your inadequacies. God does not take offense at the inconvenience of your neediness, like you're some pathetic worm. Rather, he responds to your needs, and he responds with favor, and he goes way beyond what is expected. God is extravagant and undeservedly generous-hearted. Thirdly, God is slow to anger. It speaks of God's forbearance. It's the opposite of short-tempered. God's never on edge. You know, he's not standing over you with some short fuse, critical of every, of every mistake, just waiting to go off. His, his reflex is, is not anger. God does not have a borderline personality disorder. He's patient. He loves giving safety and time 
for conviction and repentance to rise because that's just who he is. And when he does act against evil, and make no mistake, he will act against evil. It's never reactionary or impulsive or volatile. It is, it's careful, it is considered, it is wise, it's holy. And then fourthly, God is abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So if, if God is slow at anger, then what's his fastball? He's coming in hard with steadfast love. This is what he's great at. If he's not great at this, he's great at that. Steadfast love. This, is one, this, this word is one of the most important words in the Bible. We've seen it before. We've talked about it before. We've explained it before. It's a covenantal word. It's used of people bound in a relationship. And when it's used in relationship to God, it speaks of God's unobligated loyalty. Unobligated loyalty to keep his promises toward his people. It speaks of doing good when it's not deserved, when there's no obligation to do it. To quote one of my theologically smarter friends than me, <laughs> this word refers to God's committed, loyal, freely given, undeserved, grab hold of you and not let you go love. I think that about sums it up. Next, fifthly, God is abounding in faithfulness. And this is... This is faithfulness in the sense of dependability. It's about somebody you can count on. Firmness, strong arms, strong pillars. <laughs> Unreserved, unre unswervingly reliable. God always keeps his promises. He can always be counted on. He always comes through. He always hits safely with runners in scoring position. Every time. Who else do you know who's like that? One theologian writes, paired together these two attributes, namely steadfast love and faithfulness, paired together these two attributes are theological dynamite. <laughs> And verse 7 emphasizes the constancy of God's faithfulness by, by repeating the phrase, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Keeping it. That is, guarding it. God guards his love. He preserves his love. His love never gets away from him. His, his love never escapes. God never acts any differently. And it is spread through the generations, gathering up more and more and more people into the bond of his love. And, and if you know, if, if you are his today, know this. God binds himself to his people. God is committed and present with his people to extend mercy and grace to his people. And when his people sin, 
When God's people sin, this is the sixth thing. God forgives. The, the word forgive is such a, it's just such a common verb. We just don't even really take it very seriously. It translated, it simply means to lift or to lift up or to carry away or to bear. Forgiveness is what God does with repented for sin. He doesn't hold it over our heads. He lifts it off of our shoulders and he bears it away. And lest you doubt that and, and you, are, you cringe and with shame and fear about some past sin, if you are here today, right now, ashamed over something you've done, something that you just cannot shake, hear this word. God forgives. And if that isn't emphatic enough, look at verse 7. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So in, in communicating himself, God piles up these words to show that, that he forgives the entire spectrum of sin. Everything from faults, things that, you know, we did it that we weren't even thinking about, to willful disobedience, all the way to the kind of outright rebellion and treason that the people committed in Exodus 32. There is there's nothing beyond the reach of God's great grace. There's no type of sin, there's no degree of sin that is beyond God's capacity and willingness to forgive. lest this attribute be misunderstood or presumed upon, there is a sober note sounded at the end of verse 7. God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You know, the, the world is full of people who would wish God's self-disclosure stopped with forgiveness. But, but listen, loved ones, that would not be the kind of God worth worshiping, would it? W would you really worship a God who indulges sin? Would you really praise a God who has no standard of righteousness? Would you really trust a God who doesn't care about injustice? Would you lay down your life for a God who is content to permit sin to defile the people in the world that he has made? That's not our God. And so finally, God is just. He's a just God. And the unrepentant and unbelieving sinner will find no safe quarter with this God. And th there may very well be consequences for sins, consequences that will persist for what? Like three generations, four generations? 
But, but even in, in that, that sober note, don't miss the accent here that God places. Per- perhaps you can see it again in that footnote in your Bible. God's forgiveness is for and to a thousand generations. Now, that's God's story. That is who God is. Now, despite my sermon title, namely, View from the Cleft of the Rock, there's nothing in this text about what Moses actually saw. Perhaps we might deduce from Exodus 33, verse 23, that that all Moses saw was just a glimpse of God's back. So, rather than telling us what Moses saw, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 is, it's all about what Moses heard. God didn't blow Moses away with his visible display of of his power and perfection. Rather, God spoke. And what Moses heard is all about who God is to his people and what God does for his people. And there there, there is significance for us in all that. Part of the significance is simply God's word is sufficient. God's Word contains everything that we need God to communicate to us about Himself for our salvation so that we might trust His promises and that we might follow Him and obey Him completely. God's Word is all we need for a relationship with Him. Now, the last observation is this, and it's it's Moses' response you know, it probably goes without saying that Moses is overwhelmed. And so, verse 8 says, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. You know, over the course of his life, Moses had experienced a lot of God. But he had never experienced anything like this. He'd seen God's glory in the plagues. He'd seen God's glory in the parting of the Red Sea. He'd he'd seen the miracle of manna provided in the wilderness. He'd seen this towering inferno of God's earlier descent on Mount Sinai. But the focus here, the focus here, while he stood safely in the cleft of the rock is the matchless majesty of God's mercy and grace towards sinners. My non-Christian friends here today, perhaps you feel like, you know, if, if, like if, only, if only I could see like a bona fide miracle, I, I would say, I believe. I've seen the glory of God. But listen, The greatest miracle of all, the greatest display of God's glory of all, the most stunning revelation of the greatness and goodness of God is the display of His matchless mercy and grace towards sinners 
in the perfect life and sin-atoning death of Jesus on the cross. According to John chapter 1, verse 14, it is in Him, Jesus, the Christ, that the Word, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Exodus 34, we, we hear the word of God's mercy and grace towards sinners. In the person and work of Jesus, we have seen the glory of God's mercy and grace towards sinners. And this Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. It's just, there's just no time to put this off. Repent of your sins and entrust yourself to his steadfast love and faithfulness and his sacrifice in your place. And he will forgive you of your sins and make you his own. But Moses did more than just bow down and worship. Moses also prayed. Verse 9. And Moses said, If now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. You know, these are all things that Moses had asked for previously. It's not a new deal. So why does he pray for them again? Why is he asking again? And I believe the reason that Moses repeats these particular requests is because he had just encountered God in all of his greatness and mercy. And and from the experience of that revelation, that illumination, he prays again. He is moved again. He is informed again. He is inspired again. Out of that revelation springs a God-centered desire and God-centered affections. That's what we do, isn't it? When we hear God's word and we give attention to this verbal revelation of what God has said about who he is. And when the spirit of God brings illumination to it. And like Moses He establishes this this rock-solid foundation for our worship as well as spirit-inspired information for our prayers. And, And further, we have every assurance that the covenant that was shattered, that was blown up by the rebellion of the people in Exodus 32 can now be renewed by God's grace. And the ground of our confidence today that God's covenant can be and will be renewed by God's grace is because of who God has communicated himself to be. Only only our confidence is even better than Moses' confidence. Our foundation is even more firm than Moses' foundation. And that's because God's greatest saving act has now been fulfilled. And that, that revelation was not merely an announcement A proclamation, that revelation is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. The glory that Moses asked to see, the glory that he heard in Exodus 34 would one day appear in the flesh, 
It's in the person of Jesus that you and I encounter and experience God's steadfast love, his loyal, relentless love. Christian, Christian, he's got you. You cannot get out of his grip. In Jesus, we encounter and experience God's faithfulness. In Jesus, we encounter God's holiness and justice. Ours, the, the, the payment required for our sins was paid for in full. The justice that was required for our sins was fulfilled. The greatest display of God's mercy and justice is on the cross as Jesus died. And so in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, we encounter the very nature of God. In Jesus, we behold the glory of God. According to John 1, verses 17 and 18, the law was given through Moses on those two tablets. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Nobody's ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. Behold our God. And come. Come. Bow down. And let us worship him. Let's pray together. And just before I pray. I just want to remind you that it is on the last Sunday of the month. That. Uh, our prayer team will be available here at the front, in front of the platform, and we would, it would be our joy and our privilege to pray for you today. Pray for your healing physically. Pray for God's presence and nearness to be revealed to you. Perhaps your, your cares that you come with are complicated by your own experience that You've sought God's mercy and compassion and he has seemed to you to be aloof to your needs. We would love to pray for you. Perhaps your perspective is that God's ticked off at you. But, our, but your desire is for God's forgiveness. We would love to pray for you. Perhaps you feel the need to know God's, to know God's committed, loyal, freely given, undeserved, grab hold of you and not let go love. And we would love to pray that God would grant that experience to you. Perhaps God's word written and God's word enfleshed, the person of Jesus. Well, perhaps you would like that to take greater prominence in your thinking and in your feeling and in your acting and in your doing and in your parenting and in your marriage and in your friendships and in everything. We'd love to pray for you. And so, Lord God, we ask with Moses, if your presence, if your presence would not be with us, going with us, discernibly active among us. We just don't want anything else more than that. So, 
Holy Spirit, show us the glory of God today as we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.